Radio 570 KVI. It's KVI Want to Know Weekends. KVI Want to Know Weekends. Get ready to raise a toast with Seattle's most spirited hour of talk. Happy Hour Radio, sponsored by Mary Hill Winery. Explore the best in Washington wines, beer, spirits, food, and more with your guide, Seattle sommelier, Christopher Chan. It's Happy Hour Radio, right now on Talk Radio 570 KVI. Well, hello, Puget Sound. Hello, Seattle, and welcome to Happy Hour Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Chan, event sommelier, your weekend wine guy, and uh, your spiritual scholar. Um, it is November, and it's uh, the rain has set in, um, the gray, the darkness, the cold, but there's always something in your glass that brings uh, a hint of summer or sunshine and warmth available. Hopefully, you've got something nice in your glass. Uh, joining me right here, 6 o'clock on Saturday night, every Saturday night, on 570 KVI. And uh, today's show, um, you know, when we have November and December, in October, you have uh, months with the letter R, and uh, the old rule is uh, don't eat oysters um, unless they come from a month with the letter R. And now November, uh, the Oyster New Year just took place down at uh, Elliott's uh, on the uh, waterfront, and that was a huge, huge party. I went to that event 20 years ago, and it's all the oysters you could eat, and of course, great wines and beers, and, and oh my... Um, and speaking of oysters, one of the wines that uh, I truly enjoy with oysters, and actually I enjoy overall, is called Chablis. Chablis is a Chardonnay from uh, the Burgundy region. It's actually from the Chablis region. And it's uh, uh, north of the Cote d'Or, and a little cooler area with uh, a quite uh, interesting soil profile. And I have the pleasure of having uh, two local Somme sommeliers here. I've got uh, Luke Wallers, who is an advanced sommelier and has his own uh, import and distributing company called Wallen Selections. And a restaurateur, a, uh, a bar entrepreneur. Uh, Mark Papineau is in the sommelier, and he's uh, the head of Bar Ferdinand and uh, works with London Plain and Sitka and Spruce and uh, Bar Sior. So, uh, Mark and Luke, welcome back to Happy Hour. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Hey, so excited. we got to thank our friends over in New York who sent us uh, uh, Chablis samples. In fact, uh, we've got a, a village-level Chablis. We've got two Premier Cru Chablis and something called Grand Cru. So, um, Luke, why don't you just give us a little history about the, the area of Chablis and why it is so unique? Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> Chablis is, uh, sits on top of what's um, known as a Kimmeridgian uh, shelf. It's the same uh, soil type that you find um, kind of Western Germany, extending all the way to the, the White Hills of Dover in uh, in the UK. So this is so basically it's an old um, old old uh, seabed that um, is made up of these um, fossilized crustaceans. So it's essentially it's a chalky kind of limestone soil, and that's really what makes um, what's underneath Chablis what makes Chablis um, so crisp, so lively, so um, full of verve. And um, in terms of what grows here is is really uh, Chardonnay. Chardonnay is the king here. Um, there's a little bit of Sauvignon grown in, in um, Saint-Brie to the southwest, but um, this is really we're talking about um, Chardonnay here in its in its sort of lightest and prettiest. And so we're talking about this soil type, Kimmeridgian clay, and Kimmeridgian refers to a an epoch of time, an era. Is that correct? It does. Mm-hmm. And so we're talking, is it 80 million years ago, something like that? You got me there. My watch stopped when I was going in the time machine, so I <laughs> kind of lost track. Um, but uh, Mark, tell us about some of the levels of, uh, obviously I mentioned the term village, premier crew, and ground crew. Uh, what can you tell us about those levels of wine in Chablis? Well, I, there's... The Chablis Village uh, level, which is the first wine we have, um, 
And I think there's even a grander, isn't it? Is it Petitably? Petitably, yes. even larger than that? or Which is defined about Portlandian soil, I think, uh, versus Kimmeridgean clay. Yeah. Uh, and then Premier and Grand Cru level, which we've got a couple of as well. Um, I think those things that differentiate those are uh, aspect and um, elevation in some cases, and certainly here. Right. When you talk about aspect, you're actually uh, um, referring to the the slope which faces the sun. Where is the sun aspect um, in, in terms of giving uh, it the, the longest? Yeah, uh, growing season. Or in North America, or excuse me, in the northern hemisphere, you're looking for what we call a southern aspect, and in the southern hemisphere, you're looking for a northern aspect, kind <laughs> of a mirror somehow. Well, um, there's a, a lot of Chablis producers, and Chablis was much maligned in, the, in this uh, 60s and 70s, and perhaps even the 80s, as California, you know, and all of our um, our litigious society, uh, we can do whatever we want because we're America. So we're going to call this beautiful box wine of uh, Chablis. Chablis or Hardy Burgundy. Now, yeah. the grapes in those box wines, <clears throat> Chablis, which you'll see, uh, you know, a three-liter box with a, a great uh, airtight uh, delivery system, which is pretty ingenious. Um, but that's a different grape entirely. That's uh, typically Columbard or something, or uh, is it even uh, Concord or uh, Thompson Seedless? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you that? got me. No. Yeah, exactly. I think it's Columbard down there because they can uh, use, uh, you know, eight, ten tons an acre and make that wine real cheap. But Chablis is, is a, always 100% Chardonnay, and they use a, a very special vine training system up there. Uh, Luke, can you tell me what that vine training is? No. Are we talking about Chablis, uh, the, Chablis the real Chablis? System? Yeah. Yeah. Is that Roya? Cordon Royat. Cordon Royat, yeah. So it's it's like a little, it's like um, riding your bike in the wind. You got that one strand here that's just going up but being pushed back, right? <laughs> it's kind of a deer an antelope horn. It looks like an antelope antelope horn. Yeah, yeah. And one of the things I I, uh, I notice being in that region is how how low to the ground the the vines are trained. Very low. Very very low. And why is that? Because there's the wind. I think it's just easier to, maybe it's just easier, easier to, to work bend in, down a, further? in a smaller space. So <laughs> Yeah, probably. And I think some of the ground will keep it warmer too. But I don't know. It's interesting because we talk about cool air sinks. Um, well, the first wine we have is what? We have a Chablis, uh, Village Chablis. Mark, what's it called? Uh, Albert Bichot, 2013. Uh, Domaine Long de Paqui. And uh, a pretty pr um, prominent producer. He does uh, a lot of wines, uh, Albert Bichot. And um, this particular Chablis, the 13 Vintage, I'm tasting it. It, it has more of a ripe palate, uh, more ripe fruit on the, on the palate. But it certainly smells austere and like seashells here. What, uh, mm -hmm. what can you tell me about that, Luke? I think this is the sort of classic expression of Chablis coming through. It's really um, this is 2013, so a, a more recent vintage, a cooler, a cool vintage. Um, you're just getting this this incredible sort of lick of 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 sort of briny, salty, um, le lemon, citrus. It's um, it just it just smells of um, it smells of the ocean. And it's uh, it's delightful. So I, I get some green apple, some underripe lemon, mm -hmm. um, and a, a certain yeast note. There is a, a little lees contact. Um, Mark, when you think about Chablis, what are the hallmark flavor profiles for a sort of village Chablis? Uh, kind of that green apple and lemon quality. Um, I always imagine it as uh, the smell of like the inside of an oyster shell or a snail shell. Like just extremely earth driven. Um, 
and often or most of the time at this level we're not seeing any barrel on these wines usually those are reserved for the premier and grand cru so it's really a, a pure expression of the grape to me uh, which is fruit and a lot of mineral quality, which I definitely get on this. And so, obviously, the hallmark of all Chablis is typically a racy acidity, high acid. For sure. Uh, and this and wine that, has all that. Uh, lots of acidity, which makes it great uh, for oysters, and that's what kind of brought us into this. I wish we had Taylor Shellfish here tonight. <laughs> we need Bill Taylor um, helping us, hooking us up with uh, a host of uh, bivalves. Um, we'll move on to the Premier Crew, and uh, Luke, which one is this Premier Crew from? So this is, um, turning the bottle around, this is uh, Bernard de Fay, Chablis Pemecu Cote de Leche. And this is actually in a half bottle, too. It's in a half bottle. So let's taste it. What, uh, Claude de Forche, what is it again? Uh, Cote de Leche. Cote de Leche. Uh, thinking of Nick Leche, that's what it is. Mm -hmm. Cote de Leche. And uh, uh, one of the 44 premier crews in Chablis, I think it is, mm -hmm. something like it's, that? It's on the western side of the, of the river. Um, kind of a hilly, a hilly area. There's a number of sh a number number of Premier Cru sites uh, uh, over west of, so sort of facing. If you're standing in the Grand Cru sites and looking over the river west, you, through the you'd woods. be through the woods. You'd be at, in the Lachey. So, <laughs> well, Mark, um, I just tasted this wine, and this is strikingly different than the 2013 vintage uh, Village Chablis. What do you find unique about this particular Premier Cru? Uh, for me, I mean. There's so much more uh, dimension to it, so many different angles. Um, definitely it seems that you're starting uh, some barrel to a degree on there, certainly not 100%, but uh, a certain use of wood that's kind of framing that. Uh, still with that beautiful classic kind of minerality uh, zip on the nose anyway. It's a lot riper too. You, it is you more that ripe. on the nose. Yeah, it's, this is a 2012 vintage, so it's a much smaller, um, smaller um, a harvest, and they had uh, not a lot to work with. But what they did have was really of excellent qual uh, quality. Mostly, um, this is a great producer, and you're just getting this ripe orchard fruit that's coming right off the nose. Yeah, mm -hmm. it's definitely a little riper apple, more of a, a yellow apple, and than the green. But the acid's still there, but there's a certain polish to this. It almost feel, tastes like it's gone through just a touch of mallow because it's that kind of round. I think that's some of the least contact you're referring to in the barrel, just some of that little bit of oxidation or, mm -hmm. um, you know, I call it the, the fine sandpaper rubbing off some of the, the wrinkles on, on some of these wines and the acid wrinkles. Yeah. This producer also f uh, ferments with uh, natural yeast, so that's you get that kind of wild, some of these wild aromas. We call that sauvage. Yeah, tasty. And... Uh, the length here versus the first wine. The first wine had a lot of acidity, which gave you that length, but this wine has a lot more complexity on the finish. Most definitely, and it just keeps rolling. I mean, it's still sitting on my palate. Yeah, it's uh, <laughs> lovely. Uh, I have no idea how much this one runs, but I'm thinking the half bottle is probably in that $32, $35 range. So very uh, a quality glass of wine, especially with all the complexity and finish. And the B-Show, I think, is probably in that uh, just under 30 bucks typically, for a full seven fifty. Um, and next up is uh, a producer that is quite ubiquitous when it comes to uh, our Chablis tasting, when, especially in the sommelier groups. Um, uh, the producer is called William Feb, F E V R E, Fevre, and it's a uh, 2012 vintage, and this is also a Premier Crew. The Premier Crew uh, vineyard is called Forshome, and one of the many, many uh, popular vineyards, uh, Forshome and uh, more. So I'll have Mark pour me a little of that, and Luke, you can tell us about William Feb. Mm -hmm. 
So, so Fevers is in, is in the Oak Camp. Um, the the Oak Camp would be uh, Oak Camp versus versus stainless steel camp producers who prefer to to um, uh, express their wines in in oak or in stainless steel. Obviously, stainless steel uh, contributes to um, preserves the freshness of the, of the uh, juice, and oak um, provides some breathability. So, I think this is an example of a producer who's using some neutral oak. Um, it's still there, but there's a development in the wine that you get from there's a there's a, fla a flavor and aroma development you get from oak that you don't get from stainless steel. Um, stainless is much more much more reductive, much more intense fruit, more like the Long de Pequi, the Bichot that we tasted, really intense, uh, hyper hyper intense fruit profile. The Fevre is, um, it's you, you get more of a sort of there's a mushroom note, there's a kind of nu a nutty character. Um, you know, picking up on that also on that that Lee's contact, it's almost like a cheese rind. Yeah, um, you know, it's quite complex. I like it. This is what it sounds like when I got my mouth in the glass here, <laughs> <laughs> right next to the mic. That's it. Uh, Mark, give us your impression of the William Feb twenty twelve Fourchon Premier Cru Chablis. Um, I mean, definitely what Luke was saying, and as well, um, there's still that acid there that's carrying it through, um, but that. The barrel presence uh, brings in, like for me, a little bit of a hazelnut quality, just slight. Um, a little bit of an almost um, like bottom note of toffee, even, which kind of lends the fruit a little bit of sweetness, uh, but still with that beautiful, like bracing acidity on the finish. It's interesting because I was thinking brittle. Instead of toffee, I was thinking a little more brittle. It's like it's, peanut brittle. Yeah, or? it just got the, the little the brittleness, the the sweet uh, mm -hmm. sugar part. Um, but it's certainly a dry wine. Well, um, we're going to save the granddaddy. One of the uh, well, is it eight Grand Cru vineyards? <laughs> Perhaps is it seven Grand Cru? That could be. We can seven. ask to be show what that is. Um, when we come back from this break, we're going to dive into uh, one of the seven vineyards, uh, and there are many producers that have Grand Cru fruit. And this is Valmour, right? Is that what it is? Yeah, Valmour. Yeah, Valmour, and what vintage? Uh, 2011 Jean-Marc Brocard. All right, so Brocard 2011 Valmore Grand Cru Chablis coming up next. So stick around, folks. We'll be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Hi, I'm Lenny Rene with Eskin Wine Spirits, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI. A look at the world from a Northwest perspective. Lars Larson, live, weekdays, noon to 3. Talk Radio 570 KVI, want to know weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, Seattle, welcome back to Happy Hour Radio. It's time for round two. <laughs> We got four bottles of wine in front of me, and I'm starting to lose track already. But uh, these are high-quality wines. These are wines uh, from France, and they are Chardonnay, 100% Chardonnay, from the area of the region called Chablis. This is part of Burgundy. It's uh, north of the Côte d'Or, and known primarily for uh, a little cooler weather and, of course, uh, some very, very calcareous-rich uh, limestone uh, soils, Kimmeridgian uh, um, clay. And we've tasted the Albert Bichot uh, Village Chablis, and the uh, 
What's the second one, guys? Bernard Dufay. Bernard Dufay, Premier Crew, Cote de uh, That was a 2012. The 2012 William Fev, uh, Forchon, Premier Crew. And now, it's rare that any of us get a chance to open up a bottle of Grand Cru Chablis because, first of all, you're supposed to wait. Um, these wines tend to uh, evolve over the course of a decade. Uh, but this happens to be uh, Jean-Marc Brocard, um, Grand Cru Chablis, Valmer, 2011. Now, uh, we've had the 13B show, which was uh, uh, average, ripe vintage, but 12 was more ripe, right, Luke? 12 was the, was the best vintage of the three vintages. In terms of heat units and, and actual spring rains and Correct. frost and hailstorms and all that. Well, there's a lot of... Um, the Burgundy's just been riddled <clears throat> with hail over the last few, few vintages, so um, I think 11, 11 being a sort of cooler vintage, 13 being a cooler vintage, 12 being of an inch um, that had some more ripeness, but... Uh, reduced um, reduced um, harvest, reduced quantities of grapes available. Um, so you get a little bit more intensity. I mean, typically what happens is if you've, if you've got a situation where, uh, where hail has decimated your vineyard, you've got, um, you've got less grapes. So the, grape, the existing grapes are going to be more concentrated because of that. So that's why I think some of these vintages that people say, oh, it wasn't such a great vintage. Well, maybe it wasn't such a great vintage, and there was a lot of hail and whatnot and heat and so forth. But um, what you did get from, from the, you know, the harvest is of uh, very high quality. Natural so selection. It's natural selection at work. Yeah. The grapes there, the vines actually know that they need to do something well to survive. That's been entrenched in their uh, plant DNA somehow. Um, well, before we get into this uh, Jean-Marc Bricard, because I, I want this wine to air out and I'm swirling my glass mm-hmm. vigorously, which I, I typically say don't swirl your glass vigorously when you're trying to smell the aromas, but when you want to aerate your wine, give it a, you know, the Oster swirl here. Um, but let's talk about service for Chablis. Uh, you know, s- s- wines with high, high acidity don't necessarily need to be uh, ice cold, right? And mm-hmm. I think a lot of times, especially when you're thinking about oysters, oysters come on what? On the half shell on a bed of ice. And so we're thinking that things are cold, which makes sense. That's for microbial activity. But here when it comes to wine, what's the right temperature for Chablis, you guys think, Mark? Probably around 50, 55 mm-hmm. would be my thought. Something a little closer to uh, cellar temp, not quite as warm as, say, red, obviously, but certainly not the... 45 or 40 that you see coming out straight out of the refrigerator. Yeah, and you know, my suggestion for uh, when you find a wine at a restaurant that is, it seems to be a little more chilled than you like, just take a little bit of pour and let it sit on the table a while and sort of try to open up. Or you can put a big splash in glass and try to warm it with your hands. Um, but Luke, when it comes to playing with your wine, and uh, do you recommend decanting Chablis or white wines in general? Well, it depends on on what the wine is. Uh, for certain white wines, I think if they're they're richer, fuller, they need they need some time to open up. Um, you could certainly you could certainly decant the wine and put it over uh, an ice bucket um, or back in your refrigerator, bring it back out. I think white, most white wine doesn't see that see enough time. I mean, it's, it, we drink it quickly, so um, it doesn't typically see see much. Uh, um, see much, so much decanting in restaurants, but you can certainly do that with more complex wines. I mean, I really only de- de- decant wines if they um, they need it for either they're reductive, um, slightly reductive. That means they're 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 not as fruity as aromatic as I'd like them to be. Um, I'll decant those wines if they've got sediment, um, or if they're just really really complex and they just need some time to open up. Um, simpler wines, I think you can just drink them straight from the bottle. Um, should be I think fifty, <laughs> you know, fifty degrees straight, uh, from, the straight from the bottle. <laughs> That's it. Perfect. You know, straw just 
Chill it and swill That's it. It's a camping wine. That's a camping <laughs> wine. That's where the box bleed comes in, right? You don't have to worry about that. Actually, that's actually better really cold, isn't it? <laughs> well, thanks for sharing these. I think this is a great, this is this points out to me why Grand Cru Chablis really needs, uh, you know, five, ten years of age because of the three wines, or four wines we're tasting, the 13 and the 12s, they all have, they're all much more aromatic. They're all much, they seem much more complex. The Grand Cru Valmour 11 is complex. It's just, it's just young, and it's and it's. It's not giving it, anything. It's up not right giving now. anything up. It it needs, um, it needs time, and I think that's that's one of the things that people expect. Maybe a, the more expensive wine to be more, you know, more aromatic or more impressive, or, or in Chablis, it's not the case. It's the the more expensive wine, the higher end, the the Grand Cru. It's much more reticent. It's much more. It needs time. It needs time to you need to uh, coax it. You need mm-hmm. to coax it. So you need um, some uh, wine play here. <laughs> I blind I blind taste Chablis sometimes from from time to time with sommelier friends and and I I often actually uh, guess Chablis incorrectly. I, I call it uh, a Premier Cru uh, wine because simply because I white I burgundy. You mean right? White burgundy. Yeah. I, I just don't notice the complexity there, um, it, but it's there. It's on the palate. It's the length. You know what's interesting too about this one? I just took a little swish, uh, swish of it. <laughs> um, it reminded me a little bit of something called smaragd, and there's just a, that hint of extra ripeness. And smaragd is a term used in the Vakau when it comes to Gruner Veltliner, um, known for the ripest style of, of uh, you know the Gruner grapes, um, and so they label it Schmaragd. But when it comes to Chablis Village, Premier Crew, and Grand Crew, these aren't just particular uh, aspects or sites. Um, these are also have some AOC or Appalachian um, origin protege rules, right? I mean, you can't, you can't just grow 10 tons an acre on Grand Crew slopes to try to make more money. You actually have strict rules. Can you, can you guys comment on that? I, I don't know exactly what the, the yields are off the top of my head, but I would, I would put I would feather a guess that the Grand Cru yields are something like 40 hectoliters per hectare, something like that, with the yields going higher and higher as you go from Premier Cru to Village to I wonder, in what, what do you think in the world is the lowest? I mean, there's a, we, this is a master sommelier question, <laughs> right? It's an MS question. Uh, what uh, AOC has the, the highest requirements or the strictest rules for uh, yields? <laughs> I think you're going to have to. Uh, That's right. Seven year. Well, I don't know. You have to. Well, let's text Shane real up. quick. He's got executive master, or director of examination here for the Court of Master Sommeliers. Lives here in Seattle, and the old canless guy who sure had a lot of uh, Chablis on their list. So Jean-Marc Brucard is um, a uh, family-owned uh, proprietor, and uh, they call these domains or chateaus or what are they are in Burgundy? Burgundy is all domains, Burgundy, right? It's more a domain, isn't it? Domains. Yeah. Like, there's there are some chateaus. I mean, you expect this big house, right? It's, you expect this huge house for a chateau. You um, do. Domain it could be someone's garage. That's right. It's a domain. It's got a mailbox. But, so. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's um I'm tasting this wine. Uh Mark, you said it is uh, definitely a closed wine, but there's some fruit flavors on here. It's certainly not showing the complexity, but how would you describe this particular Grand Cru Valmer? I guess to me what it is, I mean, it's definitely giving you something to start, but I think really what it gives you is you get a sense of the potential in the wine. So it's almost like you're, you have your face over, uh, like it's, there's a mountain there and it's giving something off the top like a volcano, but really what's happening hasn't even come up yet. 
Um, it's right now it's ash pre- and steam. Pre-eruption. <laughs> pre-eruption. <laughs> yeah. Well. That to me is, I mean, the potential is what I taste in the wine. Not to say that what I'm tasting isn't there, it's, but and the fruits are definitely there. Um, but really what's there is like what is coming behind it, which we might see as if, if this sat for a few hours or um, or we had decanted it or better yet, if we waited another five years to really see what it was doing. So question, which of these four wines has the lightest mouthfeel, lightest body, and which has the heaviest? Luke? For me, the the lightest body would be the Bichot, uh, Long Domaine Long de Piquet Chablis 2013. The Village? Village. Um, I think it's it's delicious and it's no less for, you know, for its for its quality, I think it's for its type. It's an excellent wine, um, and the richest. Uh, it's hard to say that because I think the Valmour we're tasting right now, the Grand Cru, I think mean, there's a lot of weight there. There's a lot of substance on the palate, but it's it doesn't have the the richness of the Lees contact you find in the Defay Cote Lache. Not yet, anyway, right? Not mm-hmm. yet. And Mark, but, what's your impression? I think for me, the one that is the most pleasing to drink right now is that Defay. Yeah. Um, it's the one with the most um, the most angularity and I mean angles in as in multi angles um, and there just seems there's so much going on there. It, there's more than just fruit, earth, uh, acid but just a lot of nuance in between that. For me that'd be the one. I've I've enjoyed them all. We have to thank our friends over at the the Council of Chablis Wines, in of course France, and our friends uh, in New York who shipped us these wines. I've uh, had a great time, guys. I, it's uh, thank you for sharing. this is really a happy hour because we're sitting around drinking wine, four bottles, and talking about Chablis and <laughs> and happier now <laughs> and happier now. That's right. Uh, well, gentlemen, uh, thanks again for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. That's uh, Luke Wallers, the co-founder of Walden Selections, and Mark Papineau, uh, Bar Ferdinand, Bar C your Sitka Spruce and Corson Building. Thanks, guys. Thanks very much, Chris. Thank you. Oh, yeah, folks, got to try some Chablis, especially with oysters. Make it uh, a date, and uh, um, you'll have a great time. Trust me on this one. Uh, so stick around, folks. We've got a special guest coming up next, uh, part of a In the Vineyard series, I believe, and uh, it's going to be round three. So stick around, folks. Be right back on Happy Hour Radio. Milligan with Tequila Celestial, and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI. A look at the world from a Northwest perspective. Lars Larson, live, weekdays, noon to 3. Talk Radio 570 KVI, want to know weekends continue. Now, back to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. Hey, this is Christopher Chan, your host of Happy Hour Radio, and I am at downtown Seattle for part of our In the Vineyard series, and I guess you could call me being in the distillery here, because I have the pleasure of speaking with Matt Durant, who is uh, the spirits manager for a whole host of great products here. I see something from Pennsylvania, but more importantly, I want to talk about Italian grappa. So, Matt, welcome to Happy Hour. Thanks very much for having me. So, uh, grappa has often been, um, well... 
growing up as a kid or as a college student, we all know that tequila effect, and grappa has the same effect probably 20 years later when you're older. But grappa really is the distilled uh, beverage from the remnants of what is uh, winemaking in Italy, correct? That's correct, yeah. The vinaccia is what they call it, which is the musts of the grape, the leftovers after the wine has been fermented. And uh, you represent one of the more prominent, high-quality types of grappas, and grappa's been uh, much maligned for being some of the fusel diesel uh, crazy jet fuel alcohols of the world. That's right. Um, I, I think uh, during the 60s and 70s, uh, uh, before that even, when the column still really came into uh, common use in Italy, that's really when grappa expanded into something that was probably a lot like the tequilas that we had bad experiences with. <laughs> so, and the name of the company that I'm speaking of is, is Poli, better known as? Uh, Jacopo Poli which is an old family distillery, been around for about 100 years. That's great. And so we're speaking, what part of Italy? Obviously, we're talking about the boot, but give me the region of the boot we're speaking of. Specifically, well, actually, pretty far up. You're, you're going up to the, maybe the calf area, or even up, up near the, to the knee. You're right at the base of the Dolomites. Uh, Bassano del Grappa is the name of the town. But the, the town is actually named after Grappa, or the Grappa is named after the town? Yes, that's right. That's the only uh, city in Italy that's named after Grappa. I have no idea about that. That's really cool. So how, you said how many years was this uh, Jacobo Poli producing grappa? Uh, his family's been distilling since 1898. Alright, so they were winemakers, I imagine, because everyone, unless they were like feeding the must to the animals and such. Well, um, so grappa is quite interesting. Obviously with Italy, they have a 5,000 indigenous varieties of grapes, and of course the regions, the famous regions are known for their specific Sangiovese, uh, Nebbiolo, uh, Nero d'Avola, etc. What makes Grappa so key for this town? I mean, why is that named after Grappa? Um, it's, that's the first area to really... There, there's a lot of small families, uh, small farmer families that have been up, based up there for years, and they're kind of near the mountains, out in the middle of nowhere. So I think a lot of the families made grappas for themselves, really. Um, just like we distilled spirits in the U.S. out of necessity, out of having too much crops and needed something else to do with it, similar with grappa. They're all making wine, so what are you going to do when you have this leftover must? Might as well make a distillate and make it last longer. Uh, so I think that's you know, it became tradition that way, and then the column still came along. That's when everybody got into the game, really. Yeah, commercialization with the column still allowed you to, to re-distill alcohol over and over to try to get the best parts and eliminate some of the fusel, uh, the, the cogeners and things that give you headaches and hangovers. Of course, the eighth drink will give you a hangover more often than not, regardless of how pure it is. So, um, in, in France, obviously, the term uh, eau de vie, which is water of life, and in the Gaelic terms, it was uskibe, which also means water of life. And so everything is kind of the same thing. This whole idea that we're going to distill something. The water of life really was, for a couple of reasons, A, it, it fortified the body. It made you relax. It was also an antiseptic, though. So it's when I think of water of life, I think that's really how the alcohol killed all the germs. So we're talking about grappa. Now, grappa has its own term because in, obviously there's many distillates of, of fruits and eau de vies. It's normally named, named for fruit. Is grappa significantly different than eau de vie? Um, only in that the eau de vie is going to be made from a ferment of juice, and grappa is from a solid. It's one of the few spirits that actually is distilled pretty much exclusively from solids. That's right, and in France they call that mark. Yes, exactly. Okay, that's good to know. So I'm tasting some amazing grappas here, and the, the thing about grappa is that it's a clear spirit for the most part, except when it's aged in oak, and then you get some yellow hues. Um, what, what makes grappa really delicious? 
It uh, depends on the grappa, I think, and the producer. But um, most of, I think, the secret to making good grappa is preserving the aromatics of the of the grapes, which is a challenge because you have a very small amount of alcohol left in those musts to actually distill out. Um, but I, I think once you get an aromatic connection and not too much burn on the finish, then uh, you're probably tasting a quality grappa. Now, is there a uh, governing body? Obviously, being uh, in Europe, Italy, Spain, France, of course, we all have these governing bodies that sort of oversee uh, yields and grapes and winemaking processes. Is there something that oversees grappa? There, it's connected to the wine laws there, which is now controlled by the EU. So it would be something like what the DOC was. I don't remember. the I, Wine is way far in my background now. All right, so EU being the European Union, obviously, um, when you're distilling alcohol, nobody wants to get sick like we did back in the days of Prohibition, going blind and, and bathtub gin. So grappa, um, what, what makes it interesting, you poured me some grappa here in NC Yellow. Let's talk about this one. It's called Cleopatra. That's right. This is the newest grappa from, from Jacopo Poli that he's released in the U.S. This is made exclusively from the must of Moscato wine, and it is done on a new still, a vacuum-style still, um, that he then ages it for a year after distillation in uh, French barrique barrels. In Moscato, so you said this is up in the Dolomite area, and obviously Moscato is known mostly for being in the town of Asti, Asti Spumante, a big Moscato grape-growing region. Um, is this local grapes, or so they're getting must from different producers from around different regions. He, he gets all of his grapes from a single producer that he has relationships with. I'm not familiar with exactly the winery that he gets this Moscato from. But I, I would imagine it's not too far away from him. So is there a term for, obviously we have clear grappa, meaning this the unaged spirit from in oak. But then we have obviously uh, something that's been aged in, in wood. Is there a different term for that? There is a classification actually for grappa. There are four uh, different categories and aged grappa is one of them. So there's unaged grappa, there's aged grappa, there's what they call aromatic grappa, which is sort of made from aromatic varietals, or flavored grappa. Interesting. Now, do you see grappa, you being one of the brand managers here, obviously, for the company, um, seeing consumers, and and is is there a resurgence in grappa, or are we going to see whipped cream flavored grappa or cotton candy in the future? I sure hope not, Um, but we are getting to that stage, certainly. Uh, The common grappa drinker, I think, is now slowly disappearing, so hopefully we are seeing a resurgence. You're definitely seeing a resurgence in uh, uh, seekers of quality in the category. So I think that a lot of people that want quality grappas are still buying them. Um, as far as it being a common thing with the average American, that, that is slowly dying off. So I think you're probably going to see some sort of angle into cocktails at some point. Well, we, we always love the Europeans because they either they take a long nap after lunch or they have a little bit of uh, uh, espresso with uh, grappa, is it, or brandy, and that's called the El Correcto. Yes, that's right, Cafe Correcto. That's Cafe Correcto. And then, uh, so I think they've all positioned these products to have a, a, a purpose in their daily lives. Um, with with what I should say Washington, but with the United States being rather uh, conservative when it comes to alcohol and mothers against drunk driving, where does Grappa fit? Is Grappa going to be taking the place of our, you know what, El Correcto, Coffee Correcto, or is is it still going to be an after dinner drink, something we look at, or are you looking at the co- cocktail culture to sort of help revive Grappa's presence in our market? Cocktail culture is probably the avenue that every spirit is looking to be part of because that's such a growing craze right now. Um, I would hope to see it in drinks, and to start with, I sort of 
recommend people find other familiar spirits that they're used to and try to use grappa grappas that taste similar to them together with those spirits. So the best for me, grappa is um, it's more expressive than vodka. It has more character and personality than vodka. It's less austere than rum. I think sometimes those white rums can be a little, uh, we'll call en fuego, a little flammable. Um, and obviously we're talking about good grappa. What does a good bottle of grappa cost these days? Uh, you're probably looking at on a retail shelf average of somewhere between 40 and $60, but there's certainly ones that are much more expensive as well. Which is quite interesting considering that the clear spirits aren't aged, so we're not sitting on a bottle of scotch for 12 years, which is losing you know 1% to Angel's share. Um, obviously, it's an artisanal product. It, it takes It's from the people, for the people, and there's a big story behind it. So uh, is there a website for Jacobo Poli? Uh, yeah. It, it's, if you just go to uh, polydistillery.com. You'll get an Italian version that'll hit, give you an English button to translate. Fantastic. Well, I recommend everyone have a, some grappa at some point. It's no longer uh, the uh, the bad tequila of Italian liqueurs or, or liquors or spirits. It's uh, really a high-quality product with lots of expression. Well, Matt Durant, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you very much. So stick around, folks. Uh, if you ever have a question, remember, it's ask at happyhourradio.net. If you ever miss a show... Check us out online. It's happyhourradio.net. We've got a whole archive of guests and pictures, and uh, it's a whole lot of fun. So stick around. We'll be right back for round four on Happy Hour Radio. with WineFolly.com and you're listening to Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan on 570 KVI. The Commute with Carlson, weekdays 6 to 9 a.m. on Talk Radio 570 KVI. You're in the know with KVI Want to Know Weekends. Here's more Happy Hour Radio with Christopher Chan. All right, folks, welcome back. It's time for round four, and I've got my pal, Gene Shook, who is uh, the president of the Seattle Gin Society, and this is our Gin of the Week. So, Gene, yes. welcome back to Happy Hour. Well, thank you for having me. Hey, so I really uh, enjoy this segment because Gin um, needs a focus, and it's mm-hmm. coming back. It's coming back big. Um, what gin did you bring for us this week? Today, I actually brought one from Wisconsin, of what? all places. Yeah. yeah they, Cheese gin? No, 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 no. They, it's from an uh, area called Door County. Um, it's in the northeast part of the state, right on Lake Michigan. Um, it's called Death's Door Gin. Death's Door Gin, huh? Death's Door Gin. Made so, from methanol. No, no. They, they <laughs> actually make it from um, their local barley, malted barley and wheat. Um, one of the reasons I find it interesting is they're using malted barley, which is a very challenging local spirit. Um they don't use NGS. We don't need to get to that argument, but they're making their own core grain spirit. NGS being neutral grain spirit. Neutral so grain they're spirit. making their own spirit. And they're making their own. So we call it craft grain spirit. Interesting. So they make a craft grain spirit, which they then 
give to a juniper um, barrel and or juniper treatment, creating a gin that I think we can all enjoy. Uh, it's called Death's Door Gin. It's from Wisconsin, yeah. and uh, I'm from Wisconsin as well, so this is kind of cool for me. I just took a sip, and this the aroma, actually, I say... The aroma, it's its quite green on the nose, but it's more of a lime peel green and right. a hint of juniper, um, which I think is very, quite pleasant. It, it has another unique thing in that they're using juniper that they found in Washington Island from Wisconsin. And most gin makers don't use local juniper. They use African juniper. They use juniper from elsewhere, whereas these guys decided to use their own local juniper. I think they did a, an amazing job of purely sourcing everything local. Uh, I, that's a real challenge. Um, it's really a beautiful spirit. And I yeah. I have to admit, like I say, um, my appreciation for gin just took place in 2015. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, I love my, my grandmother who's passed away. She used to drink beef eater on the rocks. Mm-hmm. And that certainly kept me away from drinking <laughs> gin at the time. Um, but Death's Door Gin, quite interesting. What are some of the botanicals in here? I mean, obviously, we got the juniper. Is there lime peel? Because I'm getting something I, like there's, that. There's definitely a more heavier on the, the lime peel. I think they do more of a citrus forward. Um, partially, that's... That's in order to balance out the nutri- their craft grain spirit. Craft grain spirit can be difficult to work with uh, in order to create a consistent taste over time. One thing you'll find with this gin is it's not really meant for some of the more traditional cocktails like martini. Um, it definitely wants to go into use in other other capacities like a Martinez or a Negroni. I love using this particular gin in Negronis. Negronis. And I just had some Negronis uh over at La Spiga, and my pal was bartending there, and just made that's a great yeah. drink. Yeah, I like I like the combination of the Campari bringing out what these guys are doing with the the juniper and the citrus forward in their um, locally crafted spirit makes it really exciting. And then you put in a little bit of red vermouth and you know certain other botanicals or certain other treatments, and you end up with just a really wonderful rich end-of-the-day drink that makes the drive home all that much better. <laughs> <laughs> While you're driving, I'm sure. In your uh, Costco, or excuse me, your uh, Starbucks uh, red cup. <laughs> even. Uh, have the pleasure of uh, hanging with Gene Shook, who is the president of the uh, Seattle Gin Society, and uh, Twitter is at Seattle Gin and uh, gin-society.com. What's on your website? On our website, we have we have three chapters. We have one here in Seattle. We've got one in Vancouver, British Columbia. We also have one in New York. Um, we promote all the different local gins that we can find in those different regions, as well as ah. people's enthusiasm for gins. So Death Story, you'll actually find on both uh, the Seattle web part of the website and the Vancouver part of the website. Um, we run an annual competition to pick the best gins from all three areas, and we'll be doing the next one in next May of 2016, um, where we're going to have New York gins competing with Washington gins and British Columbia gins. Wow. Um, so it'll be a matchup, and there will be roughly about 30 potential competitors in that competition. Didn't bring any of the New York gins here right now. Um, we'll have to do that another time. Let's do that for sure. I'm quite curious about gin, because gin is really um, an artistic sort of expression of spirits, because you get to be the uh, chef de potpourri. That, that's one of the fascinating things, is is the, the distiller gets to actually create something that he gets to realize pretty quickly. Um, you know, most other spirits, it's what the spirit is doing. With gin, it's what the what chef... What the oak is doing, yeah. yeah, yeah. Sure. Or if it's age, then it's what the oak's doing. Whereas if it's the distiller, he's actually putting all the botanicals in. There's many different ways he can treat the botanicals, redistill it, do other things to it, and then end up with a taste that I think exemplifies what, what who they are as a distiller. Awesome. Well, uh, Gene Shook, SeattleGinSociety.com. Uh, Death's Door Gin, the... Yes. Uh, 
the name is a little frightening, but uh, the spirit inside is warm and welcoming. Uh, thanks so much for joining me on Happy Hour Radio. Thank you. Uh, folks, I hope you enjoyed today's show. Um, we're always trying hard to bring you the best in the international world of wine, spirits, cocktails, more, uh, food, and events. Um, I'm looking forward to uh, diving into this gin uh, with a great cocktail. And the Martinez is actually orange juice, gin, and uh, red vermouth That's correct. on the ice, and uh, it's quite refreshing. Um, that was part of my advanced sommelier questions on my exam a couple years ago, so I certainly do remember that. But folks, hope you enjoyed today's show. Remember, you can have a question, send us an email to ask at happyhourradio.net, and if you ever miss a show, check us out at happyhourradio.net. Hey folks, life's always better with a designated driver. Cheers! <laughs>